downtown Summersworth, New Hampshire, looks like a cute little quiet New England town, Jeff. Yeah, for sure. The town's nestled on the banks of the Salmon Falls River, which also marks the town and state's border with Maine. Oh, there's a big white church here on Market Street, some restaurants and mm-hmm. shops, yep. and a fire engine red building there. Oh, it's a bakery. <laughs> and that bakery is our destination. Perfect. I could go for a cupcake or something like that. All right. Yeah, we'll park right over here. This handsome three-story building wasn't always a bakery, Ray. This used to be the location of the Great Falls National Bank. Well, now that you say it, it does seem like it could have been a bank. It's got that stately look to it. Yeah, for sure. So back on Good Friday of 1897, a bank cashier was murdered and robbed inside this building. The perpetrator was chased across state and country lines, and when he was brought before a New Hampshire judge, he explained he committed this heinous crime because he was under contract with the devil. Hello, I'm Jeff Belanger, and welcome to episode 293 of the New England Legends podcast. And I'm Ray Ozier. Think of us as your townie buddies taking you on a strange tour as we chronicle every legend in New England one story at a time. We appreciate you riding with us as we explore true crime, ghosts, monsters, UFOs, aliens, roadside oddities, and the just plain weird. Please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts because it's free and we don't want you to miss a thing. Now, before we investigate this strange tale of Easter weekend robbery, murder, and contracts with the devil, we want to take just a minute to tell you about our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. What's the first thing that you'd do if, say, you had an extra hour in your day? Would you go for a run? Maybe take a nap? Read a book? Or just show up for a friend? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're like me, you think, I can get through a lot. And we can. We're a resilient species. However, there are times that we need to reach out that hand and get a little help from somewhere else. That's what I did with BetterHelp. When I reached that limit and I realized things were getting a little bit out of control, instead of taking it out on my family or taking it out on myself, I just decided to reach out and get the help that I deserve. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy, my darklings. Get BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash P60. Do that today. You're going to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P60. It's time to take control of your life. Dave's here rooting you on, and if I can do this, you can do this. Let's do this together. BetterHelp.com slash P60. There's a link for it on today's program guide. So, Ray, we've both been making an effort to eat better here this spring. Absolutely. Bathing suit weather is coming up, and I want to fit in my bikini, of (laughs) course. totally fair. Now, if we go into the Market Street bakery and get a cupcake... I know, I know, I know, but I'm weak. (laughs) I can resist anything but 
temptation. <laughs> I totally get that. Baked goods are a weakness of mine too. Should we have like just one and then say, you know, the devil made me do it? Oh, nice. Yeah, right. Good segue. Yeah. Blame it on the devil though. He's the ultimate scapegoat. I picture old Scratch down there in the fiery depths of hell laughing demonically as he watches us above. Yes, yes, Jeff and Ray. Yes. Eat the cupcakes and I win. You'd think the devil has better things to do, Jeff. Like plot murder and mayhem. Exactly. Now, before we step into this bakery and tempt ourselves with baked goods, let's head back to April of 1897 and visit the bank. It's Good Friday, April 16th, 1897, here in Summersworth, New Hampshire. The Easter weekend is coming up, and folks in town are looking forward to family dinners and church services. Here at the Great Falls National Bank, though, things are quiet. Not a lot of business is happening today, probably because of the upcoming holiday. Sure. Some people maybe took the day off. So here's a little more background on this building. The bank opened in 1845. Business was so good that 23 years ago, the original one-story building was rebuilt by some fancy Boston architects into this grand structure that we see today. The ground floor is home to a harness store. The second floor is the bank. And the third floor is a meeting space for the Knights of Pythias group. Working in the bank today is a young 20-year-old woman named Parchi Swayze, who is the assistant to bank cashier and treasurer Joseph Stickney. Stickney is 68 years old and he's been working with the bank for 35 years. He's a fixture in the town for sure. That factory whistle means it's noon, lunch hour. The bank's empty, so Mr. Stickney sees no reason Parchy can't go get her lunch as well. Stickney, though, is still working on some accounts, so he's going to stay back at the bank for a while before closing up to take his lunch. It's ten past noon when the proprietor of the harness shop downstairs locks his doors for his lunch break, leaving Joseph Stickney the only person inside the entire building. It's 12.15. A young man in his mid-twenties has just entered the bank. He's got a goatee and a mustache, and he's wearing a derby hat. He looks even a little bit dashing. Stingley feels the customer looks vaguely familiar. A man looking about the same was in here yesterday afternoon around the same time, too, but Stingley was helping another customer, and the man seemed to quickly leave. I'd like some stamps. Stingley turns to walk into the cashier's room to get the stamps. He enters the room, not realizing that his customer is right behind him. The customer just hit Mr. Stickney over the head with a blackjack he pulled from his pocket. The old man just crumbled to the floor. No. The customer's pulling out a razor and slicing at the neck of the unconscious banker. I can't watch this. This is horrible. As Joseph Stickney bleeds out on the floor of the cashier's room, the thief begins to load a pillowcase with all the money he can find in the vault. It takes him less than a minute to pull $4,125 worth of cash and gold and silver coins. But now, he has another problem. The glass door to the cashier's room locked when it shut, with no way out. The murdering thief shatters the glass window and climbs out. And walks right out of the bank door into the middle of downtown Summersworth. Let's follow him. So the thief calmly walks down the midday sidewalk with a heavy bag slung over his shoulder. He's aware that he looks out of place. He's even becoming hyper-aware of every other person walking downtown. He must be thinking, you know, could they be staring at him? What's in the sack? The thief just jumped the fence into a small orchard nearby. He's stashing the bag at the base of a large apple tree. 
It looks like he's pulling a few bills of cash out. Look at that. He's pulling off the goatee and mustache. They were a disguise. He just jumped the fence again, and now he's walking back towards town. Wait a minute. The bank is in that direction, too. Is he nuts? I'm not sure. Well, let's keep after him. Okay, so he's walking on the opposite side of the street as the bank now. Okay, he's going inside that boarding house across from the bank. The man who just walked into that boarding house is 24-year-old Joseph Kelly. I saw him slip his landlady the $20 in back rent that he owed her. She seems delighted to get their money. Kelly isn't inside very long. He changed his clothes and is now walking back toward the orchard, carrying a suitcase. He looks nervous. Keeps looking over his shoulder. We should hang back a little. Yeah. Okay, now he's walking up to the tree where he hid the pillowcase full of money. He's packing the loot into the suitcase, and now he's heading back towards the boarding house. Kelly watches out of his boarding house window as police swarm the bank inside. Parchi Swayze was the first to discover Stickney's body in a pool of his own blood after she returned from lunch. In the shattered glass, the dead banker and the missing money made it clear this was a bank robbery. It was a planned bank robbery. Police figure whoever did this was watching the bank, learning the habits of the employees, and knew when the building was empty and vulnerable. Joseph Kelly knows the police are going to come knocking on every door soon enough. As afternoon settles on the shock town of Summersworth, New Hampshire, Joseph Kelly finishes his dinner at the boarding house and slinks off to the train station and heads north on a train bound for Maine and then Canada with a suitcase full of money. Back in Summersworth, Easter weekend has a dark cloud hanging over it. Joseph Stickney was a pillar of the community. Anyone who had ever been to the bank knew him. His pastor, Reverend Hyde, stands on the pulpit on Easter Sunday to read a psalm. He gazes out the window of the church to where he can see the bank where Stickney was murdered on Good Friday, no less. Reverend Hyde is emotional throughout the service. It was difficult to celebrate the Easter service on such a dark day for the church in town. Police, meanwhile, are honing in on Joseph Kelly as their prime suspect. They ask around all the nearby buildings, and that's when they learn from his landlady that Kelly had come and gone a few times on Friday, paid his back rent with cash, then left with a suitcase. Now, the train station recalled that he bought a ticket north that would get him to Canada. Police figured that was enough to investigate further. Sure, Joseph Kelly could easily case the bank from the boarding house window. He suddenly has money he owes, and then he slips out of town hours after a murder. That's definitely suspicious, though. Now, up in Canada, he's not helping with the suspicion at all. New Hampshire police are already en route north to Quebec to try to find him. No, Kelly is not helping his case at all. A local hotel keeper recalls a man fitting Kelly's description, paying him $10 to buy a woman's dress. He claimed it was for his wife in Montreal. And while that's not so unusual, what struck the hotel keeper as odd was seeing Kelly leave the hotel wearing the dress. In Montreal, police track Joseph Kelly to a brothel where they find him sitting between two prostitutes, still wearing the women's dress, trying to blend in. So Kelly is extradited back to New Hampshire where he faces murder and felony bank robbery charges. The overwhelming circumstantial evidence plus police find a few drops of dried blood on his bowler hat. I mean, they believe they have their man. It's here we learn a little more about Joseph Kelly. 
Kelly was born and raised in Amesbury, Massachusetts. He was one of 10 kids. He was considered a bright child, but started getting into trouble when he was about 10 years old. Stole some bicycles and even served seven months in the Concord Reformatory for theft. But no one thought he was capable of murder. It's November 8th when the trial begins in nearby Dover, New Hampshire. Joseph Kelly looks a little odd in court, doesn't he? How do you mean? Well, I mean, he's grinning a lot, smiling. He doesn't look like a guy who very likely could be executed for his crimes. Yeah, I guess you're right. It seems like he likes the attention a little too much. The jury is brought over to Summersworth to see the scene of the crime. They're also shown Kelly's old boarding room across the street where he could case the bank. The Quebec hotel keeper who sold him the dress testifies, as do railroad workers who saw him board the train the night of the murder. And, of course, police found the suitcase full of the stolen money. During cross-examination, some people in the courtroom start to suspect an insanity plea might be coming for Joseph Kelly. His lawyer describes him as a man who writes poetry and one who found himself in multiple money-making schemes, whether selling artificial flowers or standing on the roof of a hotel with a megaphone to advertise local businesses. Yeah, sure, but that doesn't make you insane, though. I mean, plenty of people write poetry and try to earn a quick buck. It's day four of the trial when Joseph Kelly announces to the court that he's ready to plead guilty. Only if his hanging could be scheduled for January 16th, 1898. And when asked why that specific date, Kelly replies that he's got a contract with the devil that expires on January 15th. With that, the jury is dismissed. The guilty plea is accepted and the rest of the trial is now going to focus on how mentally fit Joseph Kelly is and what his punishment should be. Mental health experts examine Kelly, including Dr. Charles Bancroft of the New Hampshire State Asylum for the Insane. He concludes that Kelly is, quote, a child. The doctor went on to say, quote, I should place him about eight or nine years old, mentally and morally. He has the impulses and instincts of a man, but the judgment and capacity of a child of nine. Expert after expert claims Kelly is, quote, an imbecile. Kelly's lawyers are reading some of his poetry in the courtroom as further proof that he's not mentally fit. When Kelly realizes his poetry is being read to make him look foolish, as opposed to showing the world how wonderful his art is, he cries openly. When the trial finishes, Joseph Kelly is found guilty of second-degree murder. Kelly is disappointed that he won't hang. But in Summersworth, the news is not welcomed. Everyone feels Kelly should hang for his crimes. Murdering an innocent old man like that? whether he was emotionally a nine-year-old or not. About 20 men tried to organize a lynch mob to kidnap Kelly from the Dover jail and hang him properly. But none of that comes to fruition. Joseph Kelly is sent to jail. And that brings us back to today. And you wonder that if a person was mentally fit enough to case the bank, learn the habits and patterns of employees, apply a disguise, and execute a plan like he did... Could he really have been mentally unfit? And if he was mentally fit, could there have been some deal with the devil? Some contract that expires on January 15th, 1898? Yeah, that seems rather specific. And today, the bank is now home to a bakery where you can go if the devil tempts you (laughs) and nibble on some baked goods while you ponder the possibilities of the crime and robbery that took place here over a century ago. And whether the deal with the devil was true or not, Announcing a deal with the devil in court spared a guilty man his life at the end of the hangman's rope. 
And that brings us to After the Legend, where we take a deeper dive into this week's story and sometimes veer off course. After the Legend is brought to you by our Patreon patrons. It's just three bucks per month, and our patrons get early access to all new episodes ad-free, plus bonus episodes and content that no one else gets to hear. Three bucks. It's like buying me and Ray a cup of coffee that we then have to split. If you can contribute something to the cause, we'd really appreciate it, as we try to cover every legend in New England one story at a time. Just head over to patreon.com slash New England Legends to sign up. Most of the details came from the Boston Daily Globe coverage of the crime back in 1897. And if you want to see some images related to the story, go to our website, click on episode 293, or click on the episode description. Uh, also, one other thing, I there's a, I did this inflation calculator. Uh, $4,125 was yep. stolen. That would be about one hundred and fifty thousand in oh, today's that's dollars. Pretty significant. So it's a it's a big haul, right? Yeah. That was uh, nothing to sneeze at at all. Um, and and the story and it took place on Good Friday too, which is uh, sort of interesting, right? If you're going to commit a big crime like that, I'm not sure a significant day is a good day to do it. Why so? Because I think everybody remembers it. Was it Tuesday or Thursday that I saw that guy, right? Oh, good that's Friday. right. They know right. where they were, what they were doing on their yeah, way to church. because it's a day, yeah. right? What is? <laughs> Siri, that just went, Siri just went off. Uh, that was crazy. I think this is Go back haunted. on the tape and see what we said. I don't think we said Alexa. I don't. That was Alexa. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I Creepy. Think this place is haunted. Okay. Uh, so. Uh, Specific day. Is that a copyright violation since she Having her in? voice on here? I don't know. We'll find out. We'll find out, I guess. Um, so I think a specific day of the crime is, is only going to tip people off. They'll remember it. And, and it's a unique day. Like, you know that day is different than most because it's... Well, you have a schedule to begin with. We're right. doing this, and then we're doing that, and then we're doing this. Right. So you kind of know where you were. Well, that was in between church and, and uh, brunch. Back then, Good Friday was a work day. People didn't have the day off. Oh, yeah. Okay, that, that would come. But much you later. still remember that. But it's a day. Yeah, it's a, it's it's any day, right? July Fourth, uh, you know, whatever. You remember significant days. So, right. uh, I feel like we're teaching people how to commit <laughs> heinous crimes. This happened a lot way back when. Bank robbery, sure, but not just bank robberies, but some weird guy just walking into a town and killing somebody, stealing something, and then putting on a. A fake mustache. Yeah. I mean, right now we have cameras everywhere. Right. So you can't get away with anything. Right. But you put a disguise on and go rip somebody off in 1892, you got away with it. Well, now, yeah, a lot easier than we do do now. Absolutely. And and we've had this discussion before about how, I mean, you could disappear. If he makes it to Canada right. and, and no one pieced together that it could be him, he's got a bunch of money to start a new life. Put a dress on, slap some makeup on and a wig, and, and you disappear. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if that's if that's the life you're looking for, who knows? Maybe that's not the most ideal way to disappear and drag in, in the 1890s, right? right? That's a handsome woman right there. Yeah, my goodness, that mustache has got to go, but whatever. Uh, oh, it comes right off. I don't know. Do, do you buy that someone who cased the bank for many times, right, yeah. watched people come and go, learned when to go? So Joseph Kelly went in the day before, yeah. on the Thursday before, and was ready to do the crime, but there was a woman in there, another right. witness. And so he ran out like that's that was, that came out later that he had planned to do it the day before, he but didn't want to hurt her or just didn't want another witness. Oh, maybe that. And I always look at these guys as being gentlemen thieves. Well, I don't know why they're very polite. Although he whacked this guy pretty hard and then, and then cut his throat. Cut his throat. <laughs> didn't have to do that. He Knock was him out, tie him up. Yeah. I mean, he might've survived, but the beating was brutal too. It was, he was hit something like 14 or 15 Ooh. times. 
So, I mean, once or twice he would have been unconscious and you could have had the same result. Yeah. You know, so not you, only a thief, but probably a serial killer. Some kind of, yeah, something bad. Um, these true crime stories, yeah, you, you start to say like, well, this couldn't happen today. And it's true. You don't really hear about bank robberies today. Once in a while, right? One one makes the news. I mean, because they go in and the tellers know, just hand it over. It's insured. Right. Give them whatever in the drawer. It's probably not that much anyway. I mean, yes, it's more than we have in our wallets right now, but... It's not yeah, I don't think like, they're uh, they're going for the vault anymore. You never get in, yeah. right? Like you're on, you know, you're on twenty cameras. Right, you've got twenty seconds in and out. Yeah, and it's not like you're going to get enough money to be like, oh, I'm going to go live on a beach now. You know, yeah. like no, you got enough money to fill your gas tank. Yeah, travel down to the beach, right? Maybe. But then then you got to rob another bank down there. That's yeah, and then it gets endless. But um, and those people get caught. They're on camera. Yeah, and and they're you know people people get busted. So yeah, we don't hear about this stuff. Uh, anymore. And so uh, some of these old crime stories, but the thing I struggle with is the insanity plea, right? How, okay, fine. So all, all these experts say he's an imbecile, but you know, come on. War, well, disguise? the disguise, the, the time spent casing the joint, yeah. it was very calculated. There's no way he was insane. I, I mean, a, a child, right. maybe insane, but not childlike. No, yeah, no one in their right mind does that. But I mean, I mean, if he just stumbled in off the street when it was crowded and started, you know, doing that stuff, okay, you'd say, well, come on, right? But he had the wherewithal. I don't know. I I struggle with, with you. And then he the, knew enough to go to the orchard, bury the bag, take some like he had that whole plan. Yeah, that thing planned. He's going to go pay his uh, the housekeeper or the the hotel keeper. Right. Um. So yeah, that was all well thought out. Yeah, it, it didn't sit right with me. Um. Plus, the devil made me do it. That's a defense that's as old as time. <laughs> uh, every time people have tried it, it doesn't. Well, there was a recent movie about that. It was uh, the, from The Conjuring Family, that's I think, right. right? The Devil Made Me Do It. Was that the name of it? That's Oh, you're, you're probably referring to the shock doc on Discovery Plus, no. where, <laughs> where your buddy Jeff is in uh, yeah. quite no, a bit. There was a, a fictional movie. There was, yeah. and, and there and there was a shock doc about it, too. Yeah. So, so the, the movie Same came case. out. And by the way, that started in Newtown, Connecticut, where I grew up. Did it? So uh, it wasn't connected to, oh, it was, to the uh, to Warren. the, uh, yeah, the, the war. That's right. I remember I saw it once. It was okay. But a guy is partying with two two people and he right. ends up killing one of them and doesn't remember a thing. Right. And they find him wandering the streets yep. and all bloodied. And his uh in his um his plea was that he was insane. The devil made him do it. Ed and Lorraine Warren jumped in. Yes. So so that so the For a unique case at the time. The town was Newtown where the house first was, you know, situated where they claim that uh the the guy's girlfriend's brother became possessed. Ed and Lorraine Warren worked with him. The kid got through exorcisms. And then that's right. And then it was Brookfield, which is the next town over to Newtown. Uh, Arnie Johnson is his name. And Arnie Johnson then was living in this, um, this apartment. And one night he was drinking with his girlfriend and their landlord slash friend who owned the building and a drunken brawl ensued. The landlord crumples to the ground and there's a knife on the ground. Yeah. And the girlfriend sees it and, and, and Arnie Johnson just wanders off. Like you said, the police pick him up. He does puts up no resistance. He's yep. just confused. Yeah, I'll get in the car, sure. You know, and and in Brookfield, that was the first murder in the history of the town. Well, if your Brookfield was anything like my Brookfield's yes, in the mass, then it was. it was the sticks for sure. Yeah. Small, small town. Brookfield. Yeah. There was there was there was never a murder in town. And so for the police, though, it's open and shut. Drunken brawl over a girl. Someone yeah. had a knife. Unfortunate, but, you know, like, it, it was pretty cut and dry. And it's the kind of case that would have made the local papers for about a week and right. been done. Uh, but then Ed and Lorraine Warren jumped in and said, no, 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 no. He was under demonic possession. He shouldn't be held accountable 
for his actions mm. uh, because he was attached to the, the girlfriend's younger brother who went through these exorcisms just within the previous months. Didn't he receive the, the, the demon? Well, that was the implication. In the movie. In right, the movie, right. yeah. And, and in the story, Le, said, the Warrens. take me instead or something. And, right. Yeah. And so, in, and so Ed and Lorraine Warren wanted to put the devil on trial and prove that this guy shouldn't be found guilty. And so they found a Roman Catholic lawyer, like the, all this stuff, right? And it became international news to like, and, and the, they point out the argument. You swear on a Bible, I'll sell the, tell the truth, the whole truth, not, so help me God. Yeah. Like, well, if the court believes in God, doesn't the court have to believe in the devil? Mm. And the judge, thankfully, announced immediately, you know, no, 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 we're not going to go down this road. This is not 1692 in Salem, right? right? This is 1981 in Connecticut. And yeah. uh, so the judge said, we're not going to hear about you know, who was possessed or whatever. And rightfully so, because I think had the judge allowed to even hear those arguments, every person accused of murder going forward in every state in the nation would say, well, yeah, that was the devil made me do it. Yeah. I was possessed. I was possessed. I mean, most people are not in their right mind when they commit murder. Right. It's a fit of rage. And you don't remember things. I mean, it happens. Yeah. Mind plays weird tricks on you. But, People like you and me can lose our temper and not kill anybody. Right. Yet. Exactly. Yet. Yet. As you stare at me, Jesus. <laughs> Yet. Uh, but you know what I mean? And then yeah. some other people do, and then, you know, something bad happens, and we claim the devil made us do it. Uh, like we pointed out, I don't know if the devil wants us, uh, you know, tempting us with baked goods. Yeah. I'm giving in on this one, though. <laughs> I won't me. accept him during like a uh, seance or, no. or some kind of exorcism. I won't accept him. Right, but I will accept him in place of cupcakes and and baked goods. We're only human. Am I okay? Am I okay? The jury. Can I use that as a defense. I, if I'm on the jury, you're walking. You're walking on that. Please be sure to subscribe to our podcast because it's free. And when you tell a friend or two about us or share your favorite episodes on social media, that's how we grow. It takes a community to find and bring you these stories each and every week. And we're grateful that you're a part of ours. Also, you can hear our entire catalog on the website. Previous podcasts, they all go back at ournewenglandlegends.com. And also check out the New England Legends television series on the website. Thank you to our Patreon patrons. And our theme music is by John Judd. Until next time, remember, the bazaar is closer than you think. Mm-hmm.